Good morning. The reading this morning is from Acts 1 to 27. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent, Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we're bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. <coughs> Pardon me. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or well, these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was one, of, one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was, a Jew, who was Jewish. 
He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Christians have sung of the day of Jesus' return. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? And shall I bow with humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art? Or see him coming with the clouds of heaven, every eye behold him now. Or, he shall return in robes of white, the blazing sun shall pierce the night, and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. We sing of Jesus' coming because it's our hope that we look forward to, and it is. I mean, to hear Jesus' words of commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. I long for that, don't you? And yet that day, the day of Christ's return, will also be a day of resurrection to judgment. So the Apostle Paul says that on that day, Christ will come in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Jesus himself said that on the day he, the Son of Man, shall sit on his throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and then he will separate one from another, those on his right, those blessed by his Father will hear great words of invitation. Come and take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And yet to those on his left, they'll hear the terrible, terrible words. Depart to the eternal fire prepared for the, de the devil and, and his angels. There, there can be no more important, more defining moment than that day. And yet, if we were to try and find church songs which reflected that sobering reality, it's quite hard. I did a CCLI song select search on this topic. The closest that we have in contemporary um, Christian church songs is one by Michael Morrow from Trinity City, actually, We Belong to the Day. But even then, judgment is only referred to in passing. On that day, the proud will fall the faithful rise. And I get it, you know, who wants to sing about judgment? That's something we don't look forward to, but honestly, there will be no more important day than that day. And so isn't, I mean, shouldn't we at least have one or two songs about it? 
And, and for Christians, it's confusing, isn't it? Is this day, the day of Christ, the day of resurrection, the day of judgment, that, is it the day that, a day that we can look forward to or not? And, and hasn't Jesus saved us from judgment so that we would not need to fear? And if that's the case, well, can we then forget about having to give an account before the Lord? So bearing those questions in mind, I'm gonna pray and then I'm gonna ask you what you think and feel. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to this really important topic, please help me to be clear and faithful and true to the Bible and please correct us if we need correcting and please change us if we need changing. And that's, well, that's all of us. Help us, we pray, to hear you through your word. Amen. Okay, so given the, given the brief intro, I want to just ask the question, are you looking forward to the day of Christ? Are you personally looking forward to it? To hear Jesus finally say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. Are you looking forward to that day or... Are you afraid of that day because you know you will have to give an account of your life to Jesus when everything is laid open and bare? Well, today I want us to see from Acts chapter 24 that we can look forward to this day. Paul did. And more than that, we should look forward to it, but not with a kind of glib unawareness, but with instead focused and active faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is something that Christians once understood better than we do so now. In John Stott's book, The Incomparable Christ, he cites the fall in the crime rate in England during the 1800s following the great evangelical awakening. Across the country, many people became Christians and people knew and they seriously believed, even the non-Christians believed, that they would have to give an account of their lives before God on the day of Christ. And that meant that nationally, crime rates dropped. It had that impact. What the English populace grasped so well, I think Christians today have largely let go of. In Acts 24, Paul understood the connection between the day of resurrection and how we live now. I want you to look with me at Acts chapter 24, verse 15. Paul's finally able to come before the Roman governor to answer the accusations that have been made against him by the Jews. And essentially he says, look, I'm innocent, I haven't done anything wrong, the charges against me are false. And then he says, I have the same hope in God as these men themselves, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. I want you to see the connection which Paul understood so well. There will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. So, I strive always to keep my conscience clear in my actions. To Paul, there's a deep connection between the resurrection to judgment and how he lives now. 
He grasps this connection which we've lost and I think which we need to regain. Now, I know that the topic, the resurrection of the dead, is not often talked about. Maybe you've never heard a sermon on this. And that's why it's a good thing to preach through the scriptures because when you do so, the Holy Spirit brings up the topics that we need to hear, okay? So we're making our way through Acts. This is the topic for today. Well, instead of today working through as we'd normally do, the passage in front of us verse by verse, what I want to do is to zero in on what Paul says in these verses and use that as a launching pad to explore the Bible's teaching about resurrection of the dead and then I want to come back at the end to Acts 24 to learn from Paul about how we're to apply it to ourselves. So on the topic of resurrection, the resurrection of the dead, there are five core truths to grasp about it. Now, we'll be looking at different verses in the Bible. Most are listed on your outline. It, this is a day when it would be good to have a leaflet in front of you with an outline. If you haven't got one, could you put your hand up, and Richard has very kindly volunteered, to run and hand some out to you. So just put your hand up, grab one, and, and he'll come around. Okay, so there are five core truths to grasp about the resurrection of the dead. There, um, verses will come up, um, but they're on your outline should you want to look, up, look them up later on. Okay, the basic point at which to start is that the resurrection of the dead is something that was anticipated in the Old Testament. And it emerges from the very character of God himself. So it, it first comes out very early in the Bible in the figures of Abraham and Job, who were most likely contemporaries of one another. This is very early in the Bible story. In the case of Abraham, we could go somewhere like Genesis chapter 22 when there's that harrowing account of when God tells Abraham to take Isaac, your son, your only son, the son whom you love, whom you love, and go and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Well, you'll be pleased to know that that didn't happen. Abraham didn't end up sacrificing Isaac. Although in faith, he was prepared to go through with it. And if we were to ask why was Abraham prepared to go through with it, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. That's the first reference to resurrection in the Bible. Now, this isn't a fabrication, this isn't um, importing an idea into the story, even though when you read the story, the word resurrection isn't there. But if you go back to that original story, we hear Abraham beforehand telling his servants that we, myself and Isaac, we will go and worship, which is code for I have to sacrifice Isaac, but then we will come back to you. Now, the only way he could say that if he thought he was gonna to have to kill his son was that he believed in the resurrection. He knew that God was going to fulfill his promise through Isaac. God told him to kill Isaac the way that both things could happen the only way was if God could raise the dead. That is Abraham. And then there's Job. In his case, Job, though righteous, suffers in this life so terribly that Job reasons, if God is just, and I don't deserve this suffering, if God is just, for God to be just, if I don't experience 
restoration in this life, then I must in the next. For God to be just, if I'm gonna die, which is what he was heading for, he reasons, God must raise me from the dead. He says in Job 19, I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Reference to the resurrection. So the resurrection of the dead is anticipated in the Old Testament by Abraham, by Job, and also by King David speaking ahead of time of Christ's resurrection. In Psalm 16, David, speaking of himself as the Lord's anointed one, says, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. He's speaking of the resurrection of the Lord's anointed. He would die, but he wouldn't rot in the grave, right? But here's the thing, it wasn't himself that he was talking about. 1,000 years later, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, speaks of David's belief and quotes Psalm 16, which David wrote here. And he says, I can tell you confidently that the brothers and sisters, the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb's here in Jerusalem to this day. But David was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, David in Psalm 16 spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of it. So the resurrection was anticipated by Abraham, by Job, by David of Christ himself, and then by the prophet Isaiah of all believers. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. The earth will give birth to her dead. What I'm saying is that the resurrection of the dead was something anticipated in the Old Testament itself. Jesus wasn't the first to speak of it. Now, next point, the resurrection of the dead is every Christian's hope. Now, I want you to realize that we have such a great hope compared to anyone else if you believe in Christ. No other religion offers hope like we have. What did people say of Shane Warne? I'm sure he's up there raising a beer to us. Well, how do they know? This is wishful thinking. Okay, um, none of the other religions even have a hope like this. Islam, they picture Islam's view of heaven is like a return to Eden. However, there is no belief in resurrection and there is no assurance, there is no certainty, there is only fear for any Muslim person thinking ahead to the day of judgment. Buddhism. Well, after 10,000 life cycles and reincarnations, where do you get to? Well, nirvana, guess what that is? It's not heaven, your identity is obliterated, personal enjoyment is gone, you become one drop in the ocean of nothingness. It's also depressing. Same with Hinduism. By contrast, Christian hope is more than just the hope that our soul will go to heaven when we die. Our hope is concrete. We hope for a new physical body, resurrected from the grave, recreated 
in the image of Christ to be immortal, imperishable, glorious, like Jesus' resurrection body, one fit for a new creation and a new heavens and a new earth, one that is completely free from sin's curse. This is so optimistic, this is so substantial, this is so wonderful, no other religion has, has it. It's a wonderful, wonderful hope. Jesus, in John 5, speaks of this. Um, verse 24, he says, very, tell you, very, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He, they will not be judged. They have crossed over from death to life. Now that is the view of what happens after you die, which most of us are familiar with. He speaks of something we can have now. You have eternal life, you're not condemned, you've crossed from death to life. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The next verse, verse 25, he goes on and he says, very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus is talking about another thing, where on the day of Christ, he will come and just like he called Lazarus out of his grave, and Lazarus came out, so too he will call us out of our graves and we will bodily rise to life from the dead with a new resurrected body. What a wonderful hope. And this is focused, it's a hope that's focused on Jesus. If we were to move ahead in John's Gospel to chapter 11, I've already mentioned uh, Lazarus. Jesus is here confronted with the death of his friend Lazarus and the grief of Lazarus's sisters, Martha and Mary. And in conversation with Martha, um, uh, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha answers just exactly as any believing Jew would answer. I know he will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. She's read the passages we've just read, right? And then Jesus says, and please see this, he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He focuses her hope on him. He is the focus of her hope. And in saying I am the resurrection and the life, he is not just saying one thing, he is saying two things. First of all, he says I am the resurrection. And he explains that then by saying the one who believes in me will live even though they die. So even though you die, and your body is in the ground, he says, I am the resurrection. I will call you back to life. Your body will rise. I am the resurrection. I am your hope. And then he says, and I am the life. This is not the same as what he's just said. It's different. I am the life, because he immediately explains by saying, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What he's saying here is that even though our bodies will stop working at one point, we will, uh, you know, our heart will stop bump, pumping, our um, blood will no longer flow around us, our lungs will no longer draw breath, even though that's the case. It is not the end for those of us who are in Christ. Death is not a brick wall which we slam up against and we're obliterated by. Our bodies may be stopped, but our souls continue with Christ because he is the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So Jesus takes this hope in resurrection and he focuses it on him. 
And that gives us such great confidence about what will happen to us when we die, if we die in Christ, with a faith in Christ. When a Christian dies, what will happen? Well, if you believe in Christ, who is a life, we've just heard from Jesus, our souls will live and they will go to be with Christ in heaven. How do I know this? In Revelation chapter six, verse nine, the apostle John looks into heaven now and he sees there the souls of those who have been martyred in heaven in the name of Christ and they are in conscious fellowship with the Lord Jesus prior to the day of judgment. We know that it's prior to the day of judgment because they call out, they say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Judgment hasn't happened yet. And yet they are there, they are around the throne, they are in conscious fellowship, and they are looking forward to the day of judgment. This accords with what Paul himself says in Philippians chapter one, verse 21. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far than being here. Though I'm disembodied then, to be with Christ, better than having a body and being here. Um, 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks about, you know, we long to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. He's talking about the same thing. But then come the day of resurrection for someone who dies with a faith in Christ. On the day of resurrection, our experience will go through the roof. It will step up a gear. Why? Because we will get resurrection bodies. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. Paul speaks about soul and body. He says, we don't want you to grieve like the rest of people who have no hope. Here's what happens. We believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. They are with Jesus and God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And then he says, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He said two things, the dead in Christ will rise, but also the Lord will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in him. How do those two go together? Our souls who have departed and be with Christ, they come with him, when Jesus returns and the experience of those souls will step up a notch because, in a massive way because they will get new bodies when the bodies are resurrected and meet them in the air. That is our hope. So the resurrection of the dead is anticipated in the Old Testament. It is every Christian's hope. And yet thirdly, resurrection day is also judgment day. That was the teaching of the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 12, verses one and two, talk about the day of resurrection, not just a day of the resurrection of the righteous, but also of the wicked. At that time, your people, everyone whose name is written, found written in the book will be delivered. So it's a day of salvation. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life, but others to everlasting shame and contempt. There will be a resurrection to judgment, a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Resurrection day, in other words, is also judgment day. 
Jesus speaks of this. We've already heard from him in John chapter five, but in John chapter five, verse 28, three verses after where I quoted before, Jesus says, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, all. And they will come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Resurrection to judgment of the righteous and the wicked. Now, this next one <laughs> is uh, from Revelation chapter 20. This could be slightly confusing. I will try for it not to be. If we go to the very passage in the book of Revelation which describes what happens on the day of judgment, right? We are told in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15, that the sea and Hades, Hades is like a waiting room for those who will be judged and will go to hell. The waiting room, they will give up their dead. So, gives up their dead. And all will be judged according to what they have done as recorded in the books. Books, plural. Presumably, this is the records of what each of us has done. It's noted. Now, everyone is judged. So we think, well, where is our hope? <laughs> as always, as always, our hope is in Christ. This is true in the book of Revelation of those who stand before God. Their hope is in Christ. In other words, on the day of judgment, none of those who in the end will be saved, when the books are open, will be seen to be deserving of salvation. This is not salvation by works. The sad reality is that when the lives of every one of us is opened and laid bare, all of us will have found to have fallen short of the glory of God. So if we are saved, it will only be on the basis of Christ's works, not our own. And yet everyone will be judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, we're told. Everyone will come up wanting. But then intriguingly, we're told in Revelation 20 that as well as the books which record our deeds, another book was opened, the book of life. And we're told anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So how do we put this together? All of us are judged according to what we have done, as recorded in the books. But those who escape the flames are those whose names are written in the, in the book of life. I take it that there will be no contradiction between the reconciliation of the two books. That is, what will come out in the books when our lives are laid bare, will be evidence of lives changed once someone has put their faith in Christ. Let me reaffirm again, it is not salvation by works. However, it's not like we, you know, do more good than bad and you slide into heaven or something, it's not that. But when you look, when the Lord looks at someone who has been changed by Christ through faith in him, they will be able to see a difference it will be evidence of someone who has been saved by grace. It will come out in our actions, it must. Okay. Um, the works that we'll have seen, be seen to have done do not atone for our sins, Christ atoned for our sins on the cross, but when lives are laid bare, evidence is seen. 
If I'm Michael, I'm going to depart from sermon notes just for a moment. So think of the thief on the cross who was crucified next to Jesus, right? Now we know he's in heaven because Jesus himself said, today I'll see you in paradise. But we also know that when you look at his life, he was an absolute rotter because he himself said, look, we're getting what our deeds deserve. I deserve to be crucified. This man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. So we know he's a rotter, but we know he's in heaven. When the books are opened, what will be seen? Well, there was a time right at the last moment when he put his faith in Christ and his life was changed and it was different. The other guy who was crucified with him, he hassled Jesus, he mocked him on the cross. This man defended him. A life changed. Evidence. It will come out in the books. Okay. Now that means that we can look forward to the day of resurrection because of Christ who died for us but was also raised for us. So the New Testament account is very positive. 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is our hope. Or Romans 5. If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Or in Romans chapter six, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. But you or I might say, look, the thing is, I know I'm not righteous. I know Jesus died for my sins, but uh, if I stand before the Lord, I'm not righteous in myself. Now, I want to say Christ himself is our confidence. The Bible teaches he doesn't just die for our sins to take away sin's penalty. His righteous life also counts for ours. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, Christ Jesus has become our holiness, our righteousness, and our redemption. In other words, here's what happens. When you or I put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived that perfect life for us that we haven't lived and therefore was able to pay that price on the cross for us that we couldn't pay. What happens when you put your faith in Christ is you become inseparably bound to him. God cannot see us by ourselves. He can only see us with him. He sees Christ's righteous life counting for us. He sees Christ's death that's paid for all of our sins. And he sees that Christ has been raised from the dead and so have we. We are beyond judgment. Okay, so Christ becomes our confidence on the day of judgment. And indeed, on that day, we will be changed to be like him. These verses in the New Testament tell us that when Christ comes, God shall change our bodies to be like his glorious body. Which brings us to the last point. That despite everything that I've said, the Bible also teaches that we will have to give an account for our actions. We cannot escape the fact that what we do now matters to God. This is what Paul himself taught in Romans 14. He said, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. He says, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Did you know that? 
did you know that you will give an account of your life to God? 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says again, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, again, this is not salvation by works. We're not saved by doing these good things, but we will have to tell, explain our actions. Now, how do we understand this? How do we put it together? Um, I think C.S. Lewis got it right when in his work, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which some of you may be familiar with, um, if you're familiar with the book or the movie, you'll remember how Edmund ate the Turkish delight. He shouldn't have. That wound him up on the side of the white witch who stands for Satan. Edmund and all of Narnia in the end were saved from the grip of the white witch because Aslan, who represents Jesus, the lion, he gave himself up to be sacrificed on the altar and that set them free, although Aslan had to die. And then, of course, he rises from the dead. <laughs> and then, but before the last battle, there is a scene, and you might remember it from the movie, when Aslan takes Edmund aside to have a chat, and it's a serious word. Now, I think that's what we're talking about. It's not like Edmund saves himself, he's been saved, but he will have to, we will have to answer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, now, I'm not suggesting that everything that the Lord will say when he has that chat will be a word of rebuke. Jesus said, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, to those who are deserving. In Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter two and three, he doesn't just have things that he holds against the church, he has things which he commends as well. But it is sobering to think that we each will have to give an account to Jesus for how we have lived once we have been saved. Um, when you read Christian history, you know, you can look back and you can see things in pre the lives of previous generations which they accented well and other things which they were blind to, but which we understand. Quite frankly, I think in future generations, people will look back at ours and think that the need for holiness is something that our generation has been blind to. The book of Hebrews tells us quite clearly, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Paul understood we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he says in verse 11, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try and persuade others. He's an apostle, that's his job, right? He knows what it is to fear the Lord so he does what the Lord wants him to do, you get it? I think this explains Paul's logic before Felix. I'm on trial because I have the same hope in God as these men have, the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. So, I try always to live with my conscience clean before God and before men. I'll have to give an account. 
let me finish. If we were to ask, oh, what do I do with this? <laughs> right. You need only look at Paul's follow-up conversation with Felix in Acts 24. After presenting his defense, Paul meets privately with Felix and Drusilla, and there we read, he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. If this message this morning has sobered you, good. If it has made you aware that you need to repent of sins which you thought the Lord would turn a blind eye to. Good. Do it. But you need to have faith in Christ Jesus. His righteous life counts for you. His death was offered up to pay for your sins once and for all. No more sacrifice needed. That is the clear teaching of the New Testament. He is your only hope. And he is such a hope you need no other. We need to put our faith in him, you see. He's our savior. He meets our needs at every point. But as well as needing to have faith in Christ Jesus, Paul spoke to Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. I think it's significant that of all the things Paul could have talked to Felix about, those are the things that, in summary, he did talk about. Righteousness, self-control, the judgment to come. In other words, we are wrong to think that, if we were thinking this way, that Jesus' death is a simple get-out-of-jail-free card and therefore it does not matter what we do. What we do may not determine our final outcome, but what we do now matters because it matters to God. In other words, brothers and sisters, when we are saved by God's grace, it's not just that we're forgiven to live our lives our own way. We are brought into a kingdom the kingdom of God. And guess what, a kingdom has a king. <laughs> and subjects and citizens in that kingdom. And the king that we have is the wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. There is no better king, no better one to follow. But following him means something. It means a life transformed. It means we will listen to what Jesus says. It means we will turn away from what we were doing before. It means our lives will be shaped by him. It means we will open doors to every part of our life and willingly invite him in and invite him to do radical transformation. And this will, brothers and sisters, will be a lifelong process. There is no decade in your life when you can stop repenting as a Christian. There is no year, no birthday you can have which is a year off from repenting and having faith in Christ Jesus. We must do it. So when we think about Christ coming and the resurrection to judgment, we should look forward to it, and we can because of Christ, but we also ought to amend our lives and we ought to repent of our sin. Now it may be that God has whacked you between the eyes this morning and you realize, my goodness, I'm going to have to give an account of my life before God. I'm going to have to explain how I've lived. And now you've thought that things that could just be ignored can no longer be ignored. 
and you need to face them and you need to repent of them and live the life that God has called you to live. Well, do it. Do it today. Repent of your sins. Clean up your life. Come to Christ and do it. Do it for your glory, for, for Jesus' glory and for you to be able to stand before him with a clear conscience and speak freely. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we stop and we humble ourselves before you. We're aware of things that we've done we shouldn't have done, things that we're still doing which we shouldn't have done, things that we need to do which we haven't been doing, things we've been putting off for a better, more holy day and we realise we need to do business with you now. Father, give us the confidence in Christ to come and confess and we hang on to him who died and rose again for us, who is our hope. Amen. I'm going to get Rachel to come up and lead us in confession.